Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Bill Werner talks gun control with Congresswoman Betty McCollum. Tasha Radel delves into what adult kids are doing or not doing to help their aging parents. And I talk with comedian Andy Kindler, who visits Minnesota this week for a run of shows at Acme Comedy Club. But first... Not one shot, not two shots, not three shots, not four shots, but five shots! If we don't get no justice, they don't get no peace. If we don't get no justice... There are still so many unanswered questions, but what we know is that Philando Castile, an African-American, was pulled over in Falcon Heights Wednesday night for an apparent taillight violation. Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old daughter were in the car with him. Reynolds described the scene. As he was reaching for his license and registration, he told the officer that he was licensed to carry and had a bare arm. As he got back comfortable, the police took four or five shots at him for no reason. Listen. They took his life for no reason. Shortly after the shooting, Reynolds began a live Facebook stream of the aftermath, which quickly went viral. She grieved along with protesters gathered outside the governor's mansion on Thursday. I don't know how we'll be able to move forward from this. The police took something away from me much bigger than materialistic things. And they took a part of my heart. Among the protesters, head of the Minneapolis NAACP, Nakima Levy-Pounds, who expressed that she has very little confidence in the system right now. Our community is outraged by the shooting death of this young man. Many of us watched the video and we are shaken to capacity at the thought of this man being killed, who seemed to comply with the officer's request. We were chilled to the bone when watching his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, recount in a very calm way what happened that led to the shooting of Philando Castile. And we are just beyond outraged at the fact that a four-year-old child was present as this incident happened. Not to mention the fact that Diamond Reynolds and her daughter were treated like criminals after they had just witnessed the death of their loved one. What this signifies to us is that the murder of a loved one. What this signifies to us is that black lives don't really matter in the state of Minnesota. Because this is not the first time that we have seen an innocent African-American person or other person of color killed at the hands of the police department. Unfortunately, we have seen a pattern of situations in which officers have not been held accountable by our different systems of government. We are here standing in solidarity with the Castile family to say enough is enough. We are ready for a change to the laws and the policies in this state and in this country that allow people to be killed at point blank range and in cold blood at the hands of officers in unwarranted circumstances. Governor Dayton spoke to protesters outside his residence. I promise that I will do everything and my administration will do everything in our power. You see that this matter is brought to justice and and that all avenues are pursued. Justice will be served in Minnesota. 
Pastor Danny Gibbons responded directly to the governor. I can't sit here and say that I appreciate anything that Governor Dayton said because this is the third time I've been to your house for my people being murdered for This is the third time I've been to this mansion regarding my people being murdered. I've been to your house, never been invited here as a guest to meet you as a community activist and leader. I've been to your house because your people keep killing my people. Governor Dayton has called on the U.S. Department of Justice to conduct an independent federal investigation into the shooting, but when Dayton apologized to Diamond Reynolds in front of his residence, she said it was not enough. I can't tell you how sorry I am. The terrible tragedy has been forced on you and on your family. I don't want you guys to be sorry. I want y'all to be more careful. We want justice. justice. We want justice. You will get justice. You want justice, you deserve justice. You will get justice. Former head of the St. Paul NAACP, Nathaniel Kalik. We demand immediate, immediate action from the governor and others to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Because this time, it's going to be a long, long, hot summer. And you know, I'm sick and tired of Minnesota being ranked at the top for all these quality of life issues that affect white folks and, and the appearance of the promised land. But it hasn't been the promised land for us. Earlier this week, members of the Congressional Black Caucus raised concerns about the recent police shootings in Minnesota and Louisiana. Minnesota Democrat Keith Ellison said the shootings have caused moral outrage across the country. We have a sacred and moral responsibility to call attention to this moral outrage that is happening all over our cities in all of our countries and rural towns every day. Ellison called for transparency. This is a national crisis. Every time we look up, there is some African-American person, it's mostly men, but it's women too, that are being killed by the police. Other members of the Black Caucus also argued that the cancer of racism is alive and well in America. Philando Castile worked as a cafeteria supervisor at J.J. Hill Montessori Magnet School. He graduated from Central High School in 2001 and had worked for St. Paul Public School since he was 19 years old, beginning in 2002. The St. Anthony police officer who shot Castile is on administrative leave. In response to Castile's shooting and the shooting of Alton Sterling in Louisiana, President Obama this week said, quote, the U.S. has a serious problem and that all Americans should be deeply troubled. More Minnesota Matters after this. If we don't get no justice, they don't get no peace. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. 
Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with your mouth full, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What table? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Victims of gun violence gathered this week in Washington, D.C., and 4th District Democratic Congresswoman Betty McCollum stood with them to show her support. MNN's Bill Werner talked with McCollum right after the rally. Describe to us what the message is. Well, I think uh, uh, Wednesday's gathering on the Capitol steps was a show of solidarity for uh, the survivors and family members who have been you know, f- uh, touched by this uh, gun violence. And on, on the floor... Of the House, uh, we spoke as members of Congress uh, when we uh, uh, did the sit-in, asking for a vote on no fly, no buy, and comprehensive uh, background checks. But it's also important that people not only hear their members of Congress talk about our frustration not being able to vote on these two common sense gun solutions. They need to know. Uh, the American public needs to hear directly from the victims of gun violence how this pain remains with them. Um, having an empty chair at the dinner table, um, uh, you know, people who, uh, one of the women who spoke who, uh, you know, crawled towards her daughter after her um, abusive uh, uh, ex-husband, uh, convicted uh, a felon, bought a, a gun um, over the uh, Internet without any kind of a background check and then um, murdered her daughter and seriously injured her. Um, so th- there, are, there are people who are impacted by this, 91 people a day are killed by guns in this country. And so we had 91 people representing um, those, those people who died today because of gun violence. And we need to take a couple simple steps, a couple common sense to try to reduce the gun violence in this country. How big an issue is this going to be in the upcoming election, Congresswoman? Well, I think... You know, uh, the economy is, is, is critically important to all, all the families. People are not feeling at ease with what's going on in our economy right now. Um, people are concerned about, um, you know, the, the ongoing war in Afghanistan and, and the terroristic threats of, uh, of ISIL. But people are also um, tired of picking up a paper and reading about a mass shooting or a drive-by shooting, uh, even in the Twin Cities where uh, someone sitting in their front room or on their, on their porch trying to cool off on a hot evening and a stray bullet strikes them. So we have two proposals that we would just like a vote on. We might not win. I'm prepared to lose. But I would like a vote on. Um, my constituents would like a vote on uh, keeping guns out of the hands of terrorists. With If you're on the no-fly list, you should be able to buy an assault weapon. And a comprehensive background check so that uh, people like uh, Catherine's uh, former husband can't go out while he's on bail with a restraining order 
and buy a gun because he can meet somebody online and they can legally uh, sell him a gun right now without a background check. Those are just two common sense solutions that we would like a vote on to show the American public as well as the survivors and uh, the, the families who have been made victims of gun violence that we hear them that we're trying to do something to end this uh, horrific epidemic. And the American Medical Association calls this a health crisis. That's Congresswoman Betty McCollum. Scott, thank you for that report, Bill. More Minnesota Matters in a moment. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you. And discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. So how far are adult kids willing to go to help out their aging parents? MN's Tasha Radel says the answer may surprise you. That's right, Scott. The latest Fidelity Investments Family and Finance study shows adult children have their parents' backs and far more than parents may think when it comes to money, health, and estate planning. Joining me to discuss the study findings is Suzanne Schmidt with Fidelity. Suzanne, I was really shocked when I read over the report. It was actually very surprising to me the respect kids truly have when it comes to their aging parents. Let's start with some of the key findings of the report. Sure. So I think one of the the key stats from this year's fielding is that 93% of parents surveyed believe it is unacceptable to become financially dependent on their kids, but only 30% of their adult children feel the same way. Uh, We think that's interesting for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, uh, you know, oftentimes 
means loss of independence and, and becoming potentially a burden uh, to family members is something that's top of mind as people age. And we think the, the finding here is really interesting in the sense that almost a third of kids don't feel like having to help mom or dad out would be an obligation. And we think that's a, an important place to start and to encourage families to have more uh, open, honest, and very, very direct dialogue around roles and responsibilities and expectations. And, you know, you also looked at a few other uh, bulletins when it came to, like, caregiving, estate execution, and managing finances. Can you hit on a couple of those? Sure. So I'm going to start with estate execution. And and I think what you're going to see is there are just continued disconnects between parents and their kids. So from an estate execution standpoint, 92% of parents we talked to did expect one of their children to assume the role of executor. Yet when asked, uh, only... About 27% of the kids identified uh, actually knew that they were identified in terms of filling that role. And taking that a step further, 55% of parents were really looking to their oldest child to fulfill that role. From a caregiving perspective, uh, 72% of parents we talked to expected one of their kids to assume a long-term caregiver role if need be, but only 40% of those kids that were identified as being that caregiver actually knew about it. And lastly, from a managing finances standpoint, 69% of parents expected one of their kids to help manage investments or retirement finances, but only a third, so roughly 36% of the kids identified as filling that role, they didn't actually know. So we think that when you look at these stats together, what we're continuing to see is that parents and kids aren't on the same page, and having more direct, discreet, and really specific conversations is a primary way that uh, parents and their adult children can bridge that gap. You know, and I think that's one of the things that I found interesting is that, you know, I guess I'm in my middle 40s and I really haven't had that conversation with my parents who are, you know, baby boomers and retiring, mm-hmm. etc. And so, you know, I think you always thought your parents' finances were their finances and you just kind of stayed out of their business. But it seems like we should be sparking those conversations. Absolutely. And picking up on that point, uh, lots of people that we talk to both through the survey and just, you know, clients as we, we work with them on a daily basis will say, um, well, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm a little bit older. I'm going to wait till I retire or until something happens. And we think that, you know, part of the reason we do the study <clears throat> is to drill down on what's getting in the way. And what we keep hearing from families is, well, it's just not the right time or it hasn't come up. And we think a key finding and, frankly, a key takeaway is this isn't something that generally organically comes up. You, you have to make it come up. And so to the extent that, you know, people are healthy, they're active, they've still got plenty of time to make decisions, that's the most critical time to force this, if you would, to come up and just get the ball rolling. And something as simple as asking, you know, your mom or dad in your case, hey, uh, you know, if something happened, um, where's your will or your healthcare proxy can be a simple and straightforward way to get the conversation going and, and speak to another finding from the study. And that is roughly a third of the people we talked to didn't know where those key planning documents were. And, you know, too, don't you think that that would um, kind of, I guess, maybe prevent, uh, I guess, the unclarity, like, let's say an unfortunate incident happened and you have uh, multiple siblings, you know, just having that plan in place seems like it would, I guess, cause a lot less headaches down the road. That's exactly right. And to your point, in cases where there could be brothers or sisters or in cases where there are blended families, 
it is that much more critical to have these conversations proactively. So it gives uh, parents or the parent a chance to talk about what they expect, what they want, and if they have individual children lined up to do certain things to talk about it and give the kids, um, you know, in, in kind a chance to react and, and understand what mom or dad's expectations are. And if there is a disconnect in terms of a child's willingness or ability to fulfill that role, give them a chance before there's a crisis to talk about it and see if amongst the family together they can't work something out that will work better for everybody. And, you know, shifting gears a little bit, not to put you on the spot, and I apologize, I'm kind of steering away from the study, but if there's, uh, you know, a listener out there that's wanting, I guess, more information on solid, uh, you know, family financial planning, uh, can, mm-hmm. can they seek your guys' services out? Absolutely. And there are a couple of resources that are available to listeners on our website. There are some great Viewpoints articles, for example, for kids who are worried about mom or dad and maybe getting the conversation about financial help and financial management started. Time to Take Away the Financial Keys has some really specific tools and tips on how to get that conversation going. We've got additional articles around five ways to protect what's yours and when the family financial boss dies. We've got a great wealth transfer checklist as well as a health and medical information worksheet. And last but not least, we have a new guide called Aging Well. So it's kind of an end-to-end view of what does a complete plan look like, how to get some of those difficult conversations going, and where to go for more help. So all of those are available and could be great help to folks that are just trying to get the conversation started. Thanks again to Suzanne Schmidt with Fidelity. For more detailed study information, you can head to their website at fidelity.com. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters after this. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. You may have seen comedian Andy Kindler on the IFC series Marin or heard him as the voice of Mort on Bob's Burgers. Going back a bit, he appeared regularly on The Late Show with David Letterman and on Everybody Loves Raymond. Kindler's also been a successful stand-up comedian for several decades. He makes his way to Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis this week. I recently spoke with Kindler about Minnesota audiences, working with Letterman, and more. I've heard a lot of comedians say that Minnesota is a great place for comedy. I'm wondering if you agree with that. And if you do, why, why is this a good place for comedy? Well, a lot of times it depends on the, the club in the town. And, you know, Acme Comedy Company, I've been going there since, like, the early 90s. And Louis Lee is one of very, you know, there's not, he's not the only person like this, but he's one of very few club owners who actually understands comedy I mean, there are club owners who understand comedy, but he really understands it and supports people he thinks are funny, even though they may not necessarily be crowd pleasers. 
So um, his club is an amazing club to play, and, and everybody, you know, for many people, it's, it's their favorite club in the country to play. In general, I think the other thing about uh, uh, Minneapolis is, you know, without it being a stereotype, I think people generally are pretty nice in, in, in Minnesota. And uh, so for me, I'm from New York. I'm an ex-New Yorker and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times I would play New York, and I kind of don't do well with the tough, crowd uh well, that was the name of the show but the tough you know the crowd saying you know make us laugh or you know put us down or let's have a con- uh, let's have a uh, adversarial relationship i kind of do better in with with crowd it, it, very rarely in minneapolis do people turn on you they may not get everything you're saying they may not like everything you're saying but they give you space to say it so that, that i think that's just by definition makes it more fun as somebody who's been doing stand-up comedy for, I think you've been doing it for over 30 years, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. Uh, have you developed a, a, a sort of a thick skin to handle bad audiences or hecklers? Is that something you had right away? Well, the thing about stand-up comedy, I mean, I almost like feel like I'm preaching it as almost a, in a sermon-like way. I've, I've, just basing on my own career, I am amazed that I... That if you had told me when I started that I wouldn't be making certain breakthroughs till 20 years in, I, would, I wouldn't have believed that. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, I feel like I'm a better comic now than I've ever been. And that doesn't mean that every night's going to be great, but it means that the technique that you need to become a stand-up comic is really just by doing it over and over and over. Is it really ever the audience's fault if it doesn't go well or if you bomb? Well, this is like an argument that uh, I've always had in my head and uh like jerry seinfeld who i think is hilarious and i love the show seinfeld but he would always say kooky things you know when they would talk ask him about his philosophy so one of the things he used to say was it's always the comedian's fault the audience is always right and if you had a bad set that's your fault and he also would say things like and i've even heard chris rock say things like you know a comedian should be able to perform well for every crowd it's like i don't believe any of that stuff and of course i don't know if ironically is the right word but recently like a year ago seinfeld started to blame the crowd the, the guy who never blamed crowds was like saying oh it's too pc now right. so you know he kind of like there's a hypocrisy going there uh but i don't i do think that not every crowd it's not so much about blaming the crowds but it's also like not blaming yourself. The crowd's not wrong, but you know I've done jokes that have worked fifty times in a row, and then it doesn't work at all. I, it can't be. It's not the joke. Now it could be something about my delivery that I'm not seeing, but I don't. I don't believe it's like a business where you say the customer's always right. I wanted to ask you about working on the Letterman show. I know a, a lot of comedians sort of look up to him and emulate him, and he's somebody I grew up watching. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that experience. What was it like working on his show with him? Well, that was, you know, to me, I was, I'm old enough to obviously remember uh, to watch Johnny Carson. In fact, I'm enjoying watching Johnny Carson now. They, they have the repeats on TV. Uh, but he, for my generation, you know, he really was the guy. And... Uh, so he was my hero, kind of my comedy hero. When that show came out, uh, you know, and when I was younger, it was like Woody Allen, uh, David Letterman, Richard Lewis. I love comedians who were self-deprecating and kind of made fun. To me, David Letterman was truly subversive because he wasn't trying to be subversive. He just was basically, he would do a comedy bit and he would just say, oh, this is hilarious. 
So me go, going in a show was like the dream of my life, and I went on in 96, and unlike Roseanne's first time on The Tonight Show where she killed, I felt I did a very lackluster performance, and I was kind of very upset about it. But the other part of it was I thought I was ready, but I don't think I was ready. And then four years later, I went on again, and one of my first lines was, I was here four years ago, I'm on now, I, I can't live on this kind of money. And then it just got to be where he, I could tell that each set I did, he started to like more and more. And I did this set in January of 2005 where the audience got me, he got, you know, he was into it. And then I started doing these field pieces. So it really, to me, is if you had asked me going in what my dream would be, I could, that would have been my dream to have been able, I did like 30 field pieces. I mean, it just, I couldn't have asked for more for that relationship. And uh, I just... I mean, I'm so proud of having done it and so thrilled that it happened to me. I don't really need anything else to happen to me to top that, except I would like to make enough money to not uh, to pay my mortgage. What can folks who might be listening to this, what can they expect from, from your sets when you're in town for a few days in a row? Well, because it's so close to Montreal, I will be working on a lot of the stuff that I'll be talking about in Montreal. So, um, and hopefully that won't <laughs> alienate people. So I'll be doing that. And then I always have, I always have, uh, I've been doing this bit about that I really like about, I, I can't explain it completely because it will tip it, but it's basically about how I was the first comedian who knows the difference between men and women. Before that, <laughs> comics were like, hey, men and women are similar, but I, so I do this whole thing of back me up, ladies, am I right, guys? Back <laughs> me up, ladies. And, the, and crowds seem to get it too, as well as comics. And uh, I, I will be putting down Bill Marv, which I've been doing for years. And the other thing I love about Minneapolis, well, I'll be visiting uh, my favorite uh, restaurants. I, I, I uh, already am salivating over Black Sheep Pizza. And right around the club, there's about eight restaurants that I love. So it's always, it's always like a vacation for me. But also stand-up is a vacation for me, <laughs> mostly. Well, we're looking forward to having you here, and I hope you enjoy your time while you're in Minneapolis. And I really do appreciate how generous you've been with your time with me today. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity to chat. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was really great. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks again for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. MNN.